Welcome to episode 66 of the Contra Fabulist podcast. I'm Audrey Waters. And I'm Kim Lane. And we're in New York. Yeah, we're uh, made it all the way out here, and uh, this is our first po- official podcast from New York. Yeah, we did not do a podcast last week. I, I don't know. I was over. I was so overwhelmed with the series of events that happened last Friday, um, and the and whatnot that I just didn't. Again, it was another one of these sort of Trump-induced trauma hurricane-induced trauma that made me really not want to, made me feel very inarticulate and angry. I'm still, I'm still angry, but hopefully I can be a little bit more articulate. Yeah, I, I share the vibe. I, in addition to all that craziness, I had a, had someone or a series of people kind of piss me off that week. Last week we were in LA and, and caused me to not write on the blog for a few days. And I, kind of went off in my notebook and if you happen to read API Evangelist this last week um, which it was in New York and I was actually feeling pretty good so it was interesting to watch I ranted on my blog the entire week and uh, so yeah just kind of venting and getting it out there but we're both in New York and I feel pretty good this week I should add apologies if the sound isn't good normally when we record the podcast you and I are in separate rooms Um, We connect via uh, Skype um, and then each record using our own iPhones to record the audio, like two separate audio tracks. But we, for the time being, have a very, 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 very small studio apartment in New York. And so we're sharing one iPhone in addition to the random noises around, which will make it challenging to edit out um, noises, ums, ums, coughs. So apologies if the sound quality isn't isn't good on this episode. Yeah, I mean, it's New York style. I think it'll work. There's one other time we did it this way, and I can't remember where. I but not uh, But, uh, yeah, someone's being pretty loud outside right now. So, yeah, hey, it's the way it goes. This is not like it's a professional podcast. It's just our, our little thing, right? Right, something like that. So for me, this week I had... Um, I mean, I have a couple of, I think, actually incredibly important stories that I want to talk about um, in the podcast today, but I just want to sort of make a nod that I also, I had an orientation this week for my fellowship at uh, the University of Columbia University School of Journalism. Uh, yeah. You know I'm a Spencer fellow. <laughs> I did not know that. Interesting. I never mentioned it up till now. No. <laughs> but anyways, for me, when it's it was actually... Um, uh, suffer from imposter syndrome knowing that of the other fellows um, the two other fellows that are American both are Pulitzer Prize winning journalists and I'm a freelance writer so I was feeling a bit sheepish about whether or not I even belonged there Um, it was very interesting one of the things we're actually sort of students but not really students we have to take one class um, as part of the fellowship, but it's not for a grade. Um, and But yet we had to go through orientation as though we were um, master's students in the J School program. And it also meant um, enroll or use, utilizing a variety of um, education technologies as a student. And it was, I'm going to write more about this, I think, 
keep track of this as the semester and as the year progresses, but it was really a reminder of how awful, how, how truly awful these technologies are, not just the ones that are um, sort of uh, hyped and, and marketed as, as being like the exciting hot new thing. We had to use, we used Kahoot one t um, for one presentation, which is a, um, I guess a response system that uses your iPhone and it's, a, it's sort of like a game-based response system thing um, because everyone knows that the faster you can answer a multiple choice question, the more intellectually engaged you are with the material or something like that. Um, that and then a learning management system, of course, but then a variety of other portals. And it's just a good reminder of how, um, really what a terrible experience, what a really, what a truly terrible experience almost all of these technologies are for students who have no choice in the matter. You can't, you cannot opt out of using the university's portal to access your financial aid or your course registration or your calendar. You can't opt out of, um, you know, using it for library services or, um, or to access your, your course materials. So um, it was it was a lovely wake-up call that um, someone should write about how terrible in tech is. Yeah, but that's, I mean, a lot of that is just classic enterprise IT as well, the <laughs> single sign-on, stuff like that. Well, um, there is no single sign-on um, across. Uh, so there's some things that have a shared username and password across the system, but... There wasn't a single sign-on for a lot of this. It was about generating a new username and password um, across multiple systems. Um, but I think it's it's not, and it's you're, you're right. It's not just um, it's not just education technology. And it's not just enterprise technology. Actually, like technology is bad. The user experience on on digital technologies is is bad. And I think we we we're familiar enough with when we use a tool every day. Um, that we sort of forget what a terrible experience it is. Like using Facebook, for example, people often say, well, if we just make the learning management system more like Facebook, somehow that that's, like, that's an improvement. But Facebook actually has a, has a terrible UI, right? And things are always moved around, and it's not, none of these things are intuitive, and they're not really designed with users in mind. They're designed, and you know, they're designed to sort of... Uh, really to, to sort of prompt certain behaviors among users. This is, I mean, this is the pigeon, right? They're, we're really trained, they really want to train us to do certain things. In Facebook, it's, you know, because it's an ad-driven technology. They want us to click, they want us to share, they want us to interact, they want us to quote-unquote be engaged. Um, so it, it's not about having a piece of software that's pleasant to use. Um, it's about meeting the, end, the goals that Facebook has for what it wants us to do on the site. So, but it was just really, um, you know, and I've heard people say that, uh, you know, if you think the, the Columbia uses, or the Columbia Journalism School uses Canvas, um, and people, I heard, you know, people say, well, you think Canvas is bad, wait till you try Blackboard. I'm like, I've used, I've used Blackboard. Um, that's not the point. Like Cam Canvas has a, again, a, 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 a newer looking interface. Right, it's the the product design looks like it was created within the past five years as opposed to twenty years ago. 
Um, but it, but that doesn't may, mean that it's actually really that much of an improvement, right? Putting like a new can of paint on your dilapidated house, your house is still dilapidated. I like how that's the measure. Well, you think that's bad. <laughs> that's like the bar where we have the bar. The bar, it's, I mean, the bar is, the bar is, is really low. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit um, about about I think this sort of the way in which ed tech seems to generate um, evangelism among people who have I think really forgotten what horrific experiences using tech are and are the 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 goals of many people who are pushing who are pushing tech I think is something I want to talk about in this podcast but I want to start off actually by with a story about Google. Speaking of someone forcing their their technology on us and like making this, making people believe that their technology is is the way it should be across the board. I mean, not just for search, but I mean, Google's got their fingers in every pot, and um, you know when it comes and all roads lead back to Google for advertising. But when they're doing education, when they're doing mapping, when they're doing translation, you know, pick pick the tool that they've developed and pushed either you know at the small business personal small business or enterprise level they're trying to inflict their kind of vision of the world uh, on all of these you know businesses trying to shape how we see things how we do things and uh, you know trying to make it fit with their vision of, of a, an advertising driven world which is basically the, the the shadow side of that is surveillance and and watching people well, it's funny. I mean, actually, I think the, the products that people are, in addition to search, the products that people are most familiar with with Google is another one of those cases where that you'll, like I just, the, what I just said about the learning management system, is that people will say, well, I mean, it's not as bad as Microsoft, right? As though using Google Apps, the, the argument for, for Google Apps is it's not as bad as Microsoft, Right, that the that the UI is not as bad as Microsoft. It's free. It's free. Well, um, but that's not like that. But besides the point, I want to talk about the story in the New York Times about um, Google and New America. What happened? <laughs> um, sorry, it's just funny to watch you interview. To use the iPhone as an interview. Tool. Usually, we don't have to look at each other's <laughs> faces, huh, and actually talk to each other. So it's actually <laughs> so. No, seriously though, what what happened this week? It was an interesting. So I mean, I think that this is hugely significant, and again, people have people have a very odd view of Google as being this benevolent corporation. And it's a corporation. I realize at some point it no longer is the company slogan, but that that they said, you know, don't be evil was sort of was sort of a mantra. But that's, um, I mean, if you believe that that's ever really been a guiding force for a publicly traded company, um, the the mantra for any publicly traded company is make more money for your shareholders. Like that's that's the driving force. But anyways, Google, you know, and Google is involved. Um, in so many areas, um, it spends a lot of money on lobbying. It's been in order to sort of have regulations, a variety of sort of regulations that would influence it. Um, advertising, for example, 
um, communications policy, trade policy, um, and so on. Um, it has a, a it, it spends a great deal of a great deal of money on lobbying, but it also spends a lot of money shaping public policy in other perhaps less obvious ways. Um, and a bit like the Gates Foundation, right, which we've talked about before, really does so in a way that's not that's I think, you know. It, profoundly anti-democratic when you think of a company as large and wealthy and powerful as Google. One of the, one of the organizations that's a beneficiary of Google's um, uh, wealth is New America Foundation, which is a centrist, perhaps some people say left-leaning, but I think I have a different definition of left than um, a lot of folks do. I wouldn't call it a left-leaning organization. It's a centrist um, think tank in D.C. Um, and there was a story in the New York Times this week that uh, uh, one of the research teams there, the policy research, public policy research teams there, the open markets team, had written a, uh, an article in response to the recent EU um, sanction against Google. Um, EU is really, I think, taking steps towards challenging Google's monopolistic um, power um, and challenging its um, per its behavior around privacy um, and so on. And Open Markets wrote a, a um, an article praising praising the EU, um, which then disappeared from the website um, and was put back up. But it seemed as though something was perhaps awry. Um, Google has given $21 million to New America, and this week the New York Times broke the story that the open markets team have been uh, fired from New America. Um, New America claims that they had a, a an intellectual disagreement about collegiality, um, but really ostensibly... Um, Eric Schmidt picked up the phone um, and said, listen, like, this, you know, if you want our money, this, you need to rein this in. And it raises a lot of questions about New America. I think New America is really um, sort of in a tailspin now because um, although I think think tanks are always motivated by a certain political position and certainly influenced by um, the money that funds them. This was a really overt case. This wasn't just a sort of the soft way, the soft um, use of power. This was a really overt use of, of power um, to to Chain, to change the to change New America's stance, um, but it's if you look at the page, the you know Google's transparency page, where they list who they give money to, it's incredibly. They give money to all sorts of all sorts of organizations, and you know for my purposes, when I think about the future of scholarship, when I think about the future of knowledge and information not just access to information, but shaping the narratives about these. You can see, you know, Google's, Google gives money to the American Library Association, the ALA, for example. Google funds Khan Academy. Google funds, you know, think a variety of think tanks, not just centrist think tanks, but um, 
right, you know, right-leaning um, conservative think tanks as well. Um, and these are really ways in which the, again, narratives about the future get shaped. I think think, think tanks have an enormous amount of power in shaping narratives about the future. Um, Kevin Carey, for example, is in education circles, probably one of the better known New America fellows. Um, and, you know, he has, a, he has a column in the New York Times. He writes for the New York Times, very much touting a certain vision of what the future of higher ed is going to look like. Um, it's going to be the end of college, you know, in his, in his mind. It's going to be MOOCs. Um, it's going to be very Silicon Valley focused. Um, and again, like when you look at who's funding these, who's funding the think tanks, what the narratives are, and then how these narratives get spread and I think really do profoundly shape the discourse. It's not just a matter of shaping policy or shaping regulations like lobbying dollars do or campaign contributions do, shape who gets into office, but it's really shaping the narrative around what we think, what we expect the future to look like. And Google's influence is immense. Google's influence was immense in the Obama administration, right? Megan Smith, the former CTO, who was her employer before she went to work for the Obama? Yeah, I mean, Google. I mean, this is why, I mean, the revolving door aspect of government. I mean, this is after my time in, in D.C. And then, you know, you hear how these companies... This, this tech way is like, everyone's like, well, you know, you need to think more like an entrepreneur. You need to, you know, beyond just buying these soft, these pieces of software and then using these free pieces of software and, and adopting, you know, these uh, googly Facebook, Twitter ways of doing things and, and, and way of having conversation at work and, and doing things at work. Technology is very much, this ideology is very much invading and dismantling government. I mean, start, starting with what we saw with Facebook over over and Twitter over the election. But these 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 new technologies are very much invasive species. They're very much on the attack, going after industries. We hear about it disruption. You know, they're disrupting this industry. They're disrupting that industry. They're going. It's very much invading, and this is very much the the. Um, I don't know that the the propaganda arm of that invasionary force, and so they're sending people in, you know, to the White House to these different things, or uh, government agencies to dismantle things. But then, you know, I, I don't think the think tanks are very much this kind of. For me, you know, I, I'm aware of what things think tanks do, and I'm I'm aware of their reach. But I think this very much elevated up another notch or two in 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 the spotlight as far as how wide and how broad this this invasive technological force is and and you know w you know we love to have the conversation right now about propaganda and, and fake news and it being all around the election but you know contrafabulous that's what we are we're very much focused on this fake news that has been coming out of Silicon Valley, you know, for the last decade that is very much shaping not just policy, but just general opinion. People, you know, you said, Kevin, his, uh, you know, column in the New York Times. I mean, that 
that's how people think. You know, people pick that up, read that, go to work, and that that that's how they form their opinion. And these are people working in Wall Street. These are people working in industry. Well, they, and they, I mean, and I think that you know, if you think about, um, I think one of the um, things I dread most about uh, Friday afternoons is the appearance of um, New York Times op columnist uh, David Brooks, um, um, who. who it takes the quote-unquote conservative piece on NPR, all things considered, and then they pick someone. Um, often now I'm forgetting his name from the Brooks Institution. DJ. Yeah, uh, EJ Dion from yeah. the Brooks Institution. Often, but they'll often pick someone from a quote liberal, um, from a liberal think tank. Left leaning. Not left leaning. Liberal, liberal think tank or liberal publication. But the think tanks have an incredible. You know they have do they have an incredible reach in um, they appear on you know they appear on uh, on NPR they appear on PBS you know they appear on the Sunday news shows they're who get who journalists turn to right for um, for analysis um, on on any kind of public policy matter and and don't always identify the politics of the um of the think tank um you know i I, it always irks me when you hear some um someone say you know cite someone from the heritage foundation without reminding people or the hoover institute right without reminding people of the particular um subject position that that think tank expresses um but I think that what's, but even if they do say, like the liberal, you know, the uh, liberal or centrist or conservative think tank, they never say, and this think tank is funded by the Koch brothers, or this think think tank is funded by Google, or this, or Bill Gates gives, you know, Bill Gates gave eight million dollars to this think tank, or this think tank takes money from Exxon, or. Um, and I think it's it's in, it's it's a way in which corporations have really um, I think are 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 really influencing um, public discourse and which in turn again shapes you know shapes the policies and shapes like you said shapes the way in which people even come to imagine what the political stakes are in any of these discussions and you know Google Google's Google's influence. Um, in education is really significant. Um, there was an article in, in May in the New York Times um, by Natasha Singer um, how Google took over the classroom. And in it, she talks about, you know, she talks about not just the ways in which Chromebooks, for example, have become quite popular among K-12 school, um, schools, part, partly because they're significantly cheaper than MacBooks or Windows machines. Um, but the kinds of things that you can do on a Chromebook, importantly, you can still do your standardized testing. Um, the kinds of things that you can do on your Chromebook is, is really limited compared to what you can do in, in, in another kind of machine. Um, but the, the thing about what comes with Google is it's not just a matter of using their software. It comes with all of this sort of ideological freight as well, right? And in the terms of Google, Google really likes to play up ideas around 
teamwork, for example, collaboration. Like this is what people will say often when they explain why Google Docs is preferential to Microsoft Word is they'll say, well, Google Docs is collaborative, right? And that's a, that's a way of thinking about writing and editing and composing in a certain way. Not, I'm, not, I'm not saying good or bad, but it is, a, it is a shift in the way in which we think about how textual composition works, right? And Google is really also about problem solving, right? Problem solving is a, is a particular ideological move and it's very much about skills training, right? So when Google, Google touts certain aspects of the way in which it views the future of education, it's really about STEM, right? Science, technology, engineering, math. Um, and it's not about traditional academic disciplines. Again, for better, for worse, for better, for worse, um, Google is promoting a certain curriculum. They're promoting a certain way of thinking about what is pedagogically preferential. Um, and it, if you listen to a lot of educators, they've really eaten it up. Like it really, like they, they, they mimic the language that Google uses to talk about their own classroom, to talk about their own craft, to talk about their own vision for the future. And it's not about creating citizens, right? It's about creating consumers. Well, and, I mean, this has been a, this isn't anything entirely new, but I think it's just reached entirely new levels. I mean, I remember back in the early 80s, the, the, the apples in the back of the, the, the classroom or in the special little room that I could, if I did really good on my test or I was the first one done, which I was very into doing at the time, I could go, go be part of that. Fast forward that to, you know, 1998, 1999, you know, I'm asked to come teach a, a community college computer science course which was very much VBA for office. So it was a, a CS course given to people, but I, I learned I was going to be teaching VBA, which is a language, very Microsoft-oriented language. It's Visual Basic for Applications Office. And so how these, how these companies really can start shifting the landscape underneath these institutions on what becomes what is computer science what is these these uh these these skills that people are needing they become very vendor specific they become very corporate specific and then that i think when you start talking to certain teachers they you know and fast forward another decade or two till now you know people don't know the difference because they're a Windows user and they're using Microsoft Office or they're using Chromebooks or they're using, you know, just even if they're on the Mac, they're very googly. They're very much drinking the Google Kool-Aid and into the whole Google app suite. So when it comes to learning website design or learning, you know, certain skills, you're doing it in these environments. You're doing in these collaborative teamwork, which often can quickly become surveillance environments corporate surveillance, all, again, feeding that ideology of, of it being about Google's, you know, ad-driven revenue, uh, indexing all of the world's data so that they can, you know, know what's going on. And Facebook has the same. You know, Facebook is building these business-level apps, these education-level application ecosystems that, you know, some people have asked for, you know, why can't it just look like Facebook, like you said? And so it's 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 how these... these ide these com these corporate you know visions of what is learning invade the schools 
And they're very much using teachers and using IT. I mean, IT, I think, is the older version of that, how we get in, how these tech companies get into school, you know, you whine and dine and court the IT. But I think now they're whining and dining and, and courting the teachers at a whole nother level and indoctrinating everybody in, in, at a level that's that's pretty scary. So that was um, the, the story that Natasha Singer, again, was out with uh, yesterday morning. Um, the article is actually titled Silicon Valley Courts Brand Name Teachers Raising Ethics Issues. And the article looks primarily at two educators, one a third grade teacher in North Dakota and one a f- now former high school teacher in um, just outside of Detroit, Michigan. Um, it had been a very... Both of them... Um, uh, affluent, seemingly aff- very affluent schools. Um, the pictures I thought were, the pictures for, on, these, on this article really s- told a, another narrative. Um, both educators were white, not a single student of color in any of the, in any of the photos, which, you know, I think um, says a lot about when Silicon Valley Court's brand name teachers, what kinds of teachers are being courted. So the story, the story raises a lot of questions about the ethics of these teachers sort of acting as quote-unquote brand ambassadors um, to, you know, sort of using their social media p- platforms to be able to sort of promote these products. Um, the, the third grade teacher um, has a well-known Instagram account. Apparently she gets free boutique clothing because she tweets or she Instagrams what she's wearing and the boutique offers discounts to people who buy it. Um, the, the former high school teacher now works for the 3D printing company whose who's wares he'd been promoting in his classroom. Um, and there's just a lot of, to me there were a lot of questions about, again, about students' data, right? But also just about who, who these companies expect to do this work for them, and then also, what kind of person can get away with this? I mean, I thought I just, you know, knowing, having educator friends in urban districts, in poor districts, who who get in trouble for, um, for a variety of you know a variety of um, infractions like having, you know, um, unseemly bulletin boards, for example. I can't imagine, like, the kind of educator who would be in the New York Times with an article saying there might be some ethical problems with this yo and not be fired on the spot is amazing to me. Um, But that's how whiteness works, right? Like, this is absolutely whiteness at work. And it's whiteness at work, too, in the ways in which the the article touts these students are getting to, you know, students are getting to use 3D printers in in their English literature class, which... Uh, I don't understand why that's a good thing, um, but uh, apparently it's it's a quote unquote very exciting, a very exciting and innovative um, project. But um, this the the way in which the experience that these particular students have with ed tech is really very very different from the experiences of poor students and students of color who really, they're, you know, who sit in row after row in cubicles doing 
drill and kill on software. They aren't 3D printing objects from To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, and this culture of surveillance for the educator and the students is much more severe. These aren't these open-ended, bright, sunny, um, it's just it's just such a different, it's like a night and day different looking classroom in terms of who's inhabiting it and what the physical space looks like and then how technology is used really to, to discipline students. And the, the students in these affluent schools are being disciplined as well, right? This is like tech is, it's a different kind of disciplining though. It's, it's, not, it's not punitive in the way it is for low-income students. But there is absolutely a disciplining going on when the main message of you getting being a good student is you get to like run the class's Instagram account. Like that's a different kind of disciplining and that's a different kind of disciplining students to be able to really think about their lives as being performed on social media and the value is in you handing over your personal data in the sort of, again, hashtagged, branded experience. Well, and how, how technology infiltrates into schools. You know, it's going in through these, these affluent, more white schools, uh, the Googles, the Facebooks, the Instagrams, uh, the, all these companies are getting in and they're influencing buying decisions because pe- their teachers are excited about it. Eventually, you know, these things are going to be baked into how things are operating. And that's going to trickle down to the, the less affluent, the poorer schools. And I think that's the thing that people really don't, you know, especially us white people don't see about technology is, is in our situation, you know, using social media, using Twitter and Instagram and, and using the Google, the team, the collaboration, all of these things quickly um, decompose in, in, in other environments and become surveillance. So you're getting in trouble for being on Twitter and what you said on Twitter rather than sharing what you bought at Target for your classroom and how beautiful and sunshiny your classroom is. You're actually being surveilled on Instagram and you're actually being policed by your teachers and policed by your school. And, and But both of them are policing. Like I think that that's, you know, I mean, when I say that like that, that we're exposing kids to like a, a surveillance culture through this, it's a surveillance culture when you share happy moments as well, right? Because... You know, uh, I mean, for one thing, like, inst- like Instagram is not COPPA compliant. Um, I-, I have huge questions about, like, what are the ethics of, like, you know, with the fa- addition of facial recognition software, which I want to talk about in a, in a bit, in a sec, like, um, like, what are the implications of sharing photos of your, of your classroom online? Um, I mean, I'm guessing, I'm presuming assuming that that parents in this classroom have to sign some sort of media release like often there is some sort of like media release form at the beginning of school year when you sign sign your kids rights away um but what happens when this this isn't just a matter of like the local newspaper coming and taking a a photo of like you know the spring concert this is you're handing over your students face images to a technology giant that is developing facial recognition software for its own nefarious, um, again, advertising purposes. I mean, you really are turning your 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 classroom and your student over to sort of 
again, like it's not, it's disciplining. It might not necessarily be punitive, right? But it's, it's certainly a practice of, of surveillance. And again, it, like under surveillance, we all curb, like we all act in certain ways. We think about our, our bodies and our presentations in certain ways. It changes the way in which, way in which we conduct ourselves for fear of punishment. And for all of this talk of these being innovative spaces, to have students under constant surveillance isn't actually a place in which you can be free to be experimental or creative or innovative, right? It's a place in which you are, you conform. Because, the, you know, because you conform because the, the, you're, you're being monitored and you're not just being monitored by the way in which schools of all schools are, schools are architected, right? The, the the teacher's desk at the front of the class, the the class arranged in certain ways. Schools are traditionally architected as with you know with this idea of surveillance in in place, but this is really changing and exacerbating what surveillance looks like because it's not just the teacher watching and with with each application we adopt you know and and when i say application people automatically think of you know an installed app or a mobile app oftentimes but when i say application i mean any sort of you're applying this you're applying technology in some way and every time you apply technology in this environment that it's internet connected that's that's the first thing it today is every application is is internet connected now that's just kind of the, become the default but there's a device behind that and that's every time you know whether it's it's iPads for every student laptops for every student or whether it's it's a printer or 3d printer those things are all connected they all have applications they're all gathering data it could be surveillance cameras it could be sensors it could be you know, door scanning, it could be that ticket, uh, you know, your lunch ticket, all of these applications of technology have data associated with it. And, and, and when these things get adopted, even in the most funnest team, collaborative, happy way, because of the, 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 how schools are structured that way, especially when things then go, go wrong, like budgets have to be accounted for, or, you know, there's a school shooting or there's behavioral or discipline, these things immediately get turned around and become heavily surveilled, even if they are just kind of in a soft way. So every application gets turned on will eventually be serving this in, in the long run. That's just the way it works. Right. I mean, I think that, that this this is absolutely, you know, um, I think that, again, like the these two classrooms in this New York Times article today are the sunniest, shiniest example of this. And I find it, it's, to me, it's, the 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 location of both of these classrooms is I think really important to think about. So um, the third grade teacher again is in North Dakota. The school that she teaches in has three hundred students. In her third grade classroom, which she touts as being hashtag flex- flexible seating or something, she has like she has a dozen students. So most classrooms, most public school classrooms in the United States um, from from kindergarten through high school 
do not have a dozen students, right? They have 30, 40. What, your daughter had 80 students in one of her classes? Well, that was choir, I think, but one of her regular classes had 38, I think, yeah. was like her. Yeah, and so, you know, the, you, the, <laughs> the ability to sort of have your classroom look like, quote, Starbucks when you have 40 students in there, it's, it's, not, it's not possible. It's, it's physically not possible. Um, and this, these are also classes that are, like I said, the students are all white, which um, I think the expectations, the expectations of parents, the expectations of the community, the expectations of the public looking at these classrooms are, are very different than they are for urban schools and for schools with, um, with a different socioeconomic class. But the other school, the other one, the other one um, in Gross Point, Michigan, is like 20 minutes away from Detroit. And I have to say that like there's a sentence in the article that the teacher says, my kids have access to awesome things that as a district we could never afford. And that makes me want to like, that makes me so angry that, this, that he teaches in one of the most affluent districts in the country. And if there are awesome things that your district can't afford, like imagine what it's like teaching 20 minutes away in the city of Detroit where they still don't have water that's lead free. Right. And so here, you know, and the schools in the, in Detroit, the experience of the primarily African American population in Detroit looks nothing like this. And let me tell you, those students are not 3D printing gavels to learn about the important takeaway from To Kill a Mockingbird because the question of white supremacy and racial injustice is a lesson that those students live in today and every day. And it's not just once upon a time, a long, long time ago in the South, let's read this book and then 3D print a gavel. Technology is not going to help them understand it better. It's just going to make it more oppressive on that daily basis. So, I mean, I know we've run over. I just want to end with like one piece of this to tie it back to surveillance. There was a news story um, this week from uh, a, a publication called In the Black, which looks like a strategy business publication like I the way it's written is I'm not sure that they sort of got <laughs> what a horrifying dystopian um, education system they were describing but they were touting the fact that Curtin University in Australia has quote teamed with Hitachi data systems to create a data gathering laboratory that it hopes will improve the student experience and it talks about the 1600 surveillance cameras that the university has placed um, around the school. There's 60,000 students at this university. So uh, let's see the math. That's one surveillance camera for every what, 15 students. One surveillance camera for every 15 students. Um, nice ratio, lovely ratio. Um, the way in which they, they're talking about tracking as students go in and out of the classroom, um, they there's sort of a nod that they're not tracking individual students, but yet they say later in the article that they plan to use this data to sort of connect students who might live near one another so that they can ride share. So clearly they are tracking individual students. Um, but, you know, what struck me is that this was Curtin University, um, which is, again, one of the most ethnically diverse 
universities in Australia, right? So when we see these kinds of systems get rolled out, we see the way in which um, these, these things play out in ways in which diverse schools um, are, the technologies are used to surveil and punish students and these affluent white schools, we get to pretend as though technologies are used to innovate and explore new ideas, but I would contend that there's still this disciplinary, there's still this intense disciplinary undertaking going on. It's one that perhaps looks softer and nicer and friendlier, but it is still very much in fundamentally reshaping what we think the education is supposed to look like. And there are many people who think that, that it's doing that for better, that it's, Im it's improving it, that schools should be more like businesses, schools should be run more like Starbucks, students should be viewed as customers, not as students, that the impulse that we have should be to create future entrepreneurs, not future citizens. Um, but, you know, so I, I mean, for me, I bristle, I bristle at this remaking of education. Not that the, not that what we have, not that the current model is sort of highly functioning or just or equitable in any way, but to reshape this in terms of a giant corporation like Google to reshape education in these ways that I think are still going to be unjust in new and really powerful ways um, is, I think, something to look out for. And many ed tech teachers are, have spent the weekend justifying why this is okay. Well, as these skills, um, these I think these cycles of technology become kind of smaller and smaller, and these companies believe their technology is the next big thing, what becomes these skills really become dangerous. Like right now, I'm watching the demise of Ruby as a programming language, which is a pretty brand new programming language. When you think about what's taught in CS school, in schools, Java has been pretty much the dominant one since the mid-90s, right? And so if they, these companies are going to be dictating what are skills, even tech skills, um, there has to be a longevity to that because you can't be getting a four-year degree and getting skills that when you get out is not a skill at all, you know, and, and you didn't learn how to learn. You didn't learn anything of substance. So giving giving the reins to these corporations, I think, is just super dangerous, aside from the, the surveillance aspect of it and all the denialism around you know how we're collecting data and doing this i think we're just not going to be teaching anybody anything and, and and everyone's going to be in debt for it well i think that we are we are teaching people things but the lessons i think that the that the takeaway the the lesson is individualism the lesson is consumption conspicuous conspicuous consumption right hashtag boutique where um it's about what you look like it's about how you perform in these online spaces. It's about how you open your life, your the most personal elements of your life, I think, ways, places in which you're incredibly fragile and vulnerable as a learner. Learning is something that's, is in, like, to, to, to admit that, uh, that you don't know and then to seek knowledge is a, is a place of vulnerability. And to reframe that in terms of 
um, a, a demand to be online, a demand to be, quote, transparent and open, um, and that the highest value is not thinking deeply. The highest value is the number of Twitter followers that you have, um, and that that somehow marks you as being an expert um, is is incredibly is incredibly troubling and. You know, these tech companies are, are absolutely dictating what the future of, of, like I said, the future of knowledge, scholarship, but also the future of democracy. And these are profoundly anti-democratic moves. Yeah. Uh, it just seems to be getting darker technologically. Um, I, I don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. Me neither. <laughs> the end. All right, until next time. Until next week.